Hi ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Today, before I turn it over to Naomi, we're going to be talking about a composer and conductor, and the only thing I know about this man is how he died. (laughs) Don't tell yet, because it's such a good story. I'm not going to tell, but uh, the man we're talking about today is Jean-Baptiste Lully. Lully. So, Kyle, owing to your exceptional (laughs) memory of everything you studied in music history class, what do you know about Jean-Baptiste Lully? Yeah. Nada? Zero? Nothing? I, nothing's coming to mind. Okay. Okay. I feel like maybe when you get talking, it may jog something, but maybe it won't. Let's be honest. <laughs> okay. It's fair. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Hmm. All right. Hmm. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> We're going to get into that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm looking at Naomi's notes, and they are a scandalous. Yes. Scandalous. Okay. So... Jean-Baptiste Lully is considered one of the most important composers and just figures in French music history, especially in the middle Baroque period, Mm -hmm. and Mm. hugely important in terms of kind of like the father of French opera in many ways. But he was not born French. He was born in Italy, in Tuscany. What? Yes, his his birth name was Giovanni Battista Lulli. Oh my gosh. No shit, he's a liar. Imposter. <laughs> so like most people at this time that studied in Italy, then they kind of tried to get jobs all over Europe in courts and mm-hmm. different places that had like full-time positions for composers. And so that was generally kind of how he got into music in France was he was you know, educated in Italy and then started looking for jobs all over the place. But he was actually born not into a musical family at all. His family were Millers. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, he uh, basically, he said that his first lessons or what we know about him was that he first started music lessons with like a local priest or friar that taught him how to play the guitar. And that's kind of where he started, and then he learned the violin, and then he kind of went on from there with his musical education. Sorry, and when was this? So he was born in 1632, and he died in 1687. Okay. So haven't even gotten to the 1700s yet. Got this it. is you know, early. Early, in, especially in terms of opera, because opera as we know it, as we talked about in our origin Mm -hmm. story episode really doesn't come into being as a public art form until the the beginning of the 1600s right and so uh, this is something that's quite new in Europe generally 
And so he's educated first in Italy, then he ends up going to Paris. He's around 14 years old, and he starts uh, taking different lessons with different people, becomes a very accomplished guitarist, violinist, and apparently he was a very good dancer. And nice. Earned the the nickname Le Grand Baladin, which means great street artist. So I'm cool. guessing. So did he like play the violin and, and the guitar and dance in the street? He must have. Like, how else would he have gotten that I don't know. nickname, right? Nice. So. So yes, he. So the really big thing that ends up happening with him, he works with Francesco Cavalli on a couple of operas and a couple of things, like works under him. And then he kind of slowly gains the attention of Louis XIV. And this is really where he starts gaining importance and where he starts making his mark in terms of music history. So he becomes uh, the superintendent of the royal music and music master for the royal family. Whoa. And How old was he then? This was around 1661. So, oh, so like 30 or almost 30. Right. Wow. Almost 30. And then he actually marries, uh, and he's, you know, relatively young at this point, Madeleine Lambert. And she was a really well-known singer and... Um, it's from her, or because of this marriage to her, that he changes his name to like a French version of his name. And uh. then he says from that point onward, he called himself Jean-Baptiste Lully. And he would tell people that he was the son of Laurent de Lully, a gentil homme florentin, or a Florentine gentleman, which mm -hmm. we know is basically a lie because his father was a miller. Right. <laughs> but this is how he referred to himself from that point onward. And then... In 1661, he starts taking over directing like the, the violin corps in the court. And at that time, there were uh, like a, a violin orchestra that were known as the Petit Violon, or the Little Violins. And then Lully was clearly one of, if you look at the history of kind of how he gained control and prestige in the court, he must have been very, very good at just like directing people in ensembles and mm -hmm. really very disciplined, getting ensembles to play really well together because he kind of revolutionized the petit violon. Then he created another uh, kind of core of violins, the grand violon, the great violins. Um, and from there he became like the big in charge of all of these ensembles. And then he starts working with Moliere. He collaborates with him. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that at some point in this time when he's working in the French court, he gets the patent to create opera, which I know sounds really strange. What? But hmm. in France at this time, Louis XIV basically controlled every single aspect of cultural life. And you had to get patents and permissions from the king in order to be involved in creating and composing different kinds of art. And so Lully ends up getting a patent from, um, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy who had kind of been in charge of this at the court before Lully and kind of went defunct and got into a lot of money trouble and that sort of thing. So Lully bought this patent or privilege to create operas for super, super cheap from this guy, Previn, I think his name was. And then from there, he starts composing different French, like theatrical musical works that eventually we kind of 
they evolve into what we know today as opera. Okay. He was very good at incorporating dance into his operas and well, Louis French Fort- love that. The French I was say, love maybe, dancing. Maybe mm-hmm. it's because of him. It was certainly because of people attribute it to Lully, and Lully did it because the king, Louis XIV, loved dancing and was mm-hmm. apparently very good at it. So he would write mm-hmm. like starring roles in his opera, dance roles for the king to perform. What? And oh, so it all like tie in together. It. Yeah. And so because of this, he slowly gained a lot of favor with the king. He became very close with the king. The king named him the director of the Académie Royale de Musique, or and the Royal Opera, essentially, in Paris. And he basically produced a new opera uh, every year, and he had a monopoly on this whole industry mm-hmm. in wow. France. And also I learned kind of randomly, fun fact, that it was Lully who first wrote, I think it was who first wrote bassoon parts into the orchestra huh. with his opera Cichet. So kind nice. of fun. Yeah. So he writes several operas. He becomes very, very close with the king. He introduces a lot of instruments into the opera orchestra, like the bassoon, guitar, lute, teorbo, harpsichord, organs, recorders, flutes, brass, castanets, timpanis. So he's obviously very good at corralling musical forces to some kind of dramatic purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the really scandalous thing about him, or two, there's two things that were very scandalous about him, and that was his personal uh, life. Mm. Um, while he was working for the king and while he was in Versailles, uh, and then also how he died is ridiculous and amazing in a kind of gross way. Uh, I can't but before wait. I can't I te- wait. Before I tell you those two stories, let's listen to a little bit of his music. Okay. So one of his famous works uh, is Armida. So let's listen to a little bit of that. Uh, it was considered quite popular at the time. Oh, 
People, get some new source material. New source material. All right. Get out of here, Gluck. That's the most popular one, right? Right. It's Gluck. Gluck. Well, who else wrote one? Rossini? Rossini. Handel? Yeah, yeah Handel did too. Dang. Fuck, man. <laughs> she was a popular lady, I guess. Unoriginal. <laughs> Unoriginal. Okay, so Lily is attributed with creating the French style of opera that we call tragédie en musique or tragédie lyrique. And he believed that the Italian style of opera was not appropriate for the French language because the rhythm and lilt of the music did not fit the hmm. rhythm and lilt of the French language. Mm-hmm. And so he and his librettist became very invested in creating poetic meter for the text of an opera that reflected the actual lilt of the French language, and then writing music that highlighted the French language. And so this becomes a big thing about French opera that separates it from Italian opera for basically the rest of the operatic tradition, that the French are very invested in making sure that the music reflects the unique and beautiful aspects of their language, which is inherently different from Italian. Mm -hmm. That's kind of forward thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, Okay, so... The juicy bit. Get to the good stuff. The juicy bits. The of his juicy life. bits. Okay. So, have either of you been watching the new television series Versailles? No, Naomi. No. <laughs> okay. So, for all of you listeners out there that have watched a little bit of this, this is the time period that we're talking about. Okay. All right. Because so the powdered whole, wigs. Powdered wigs. It's like the height of Baroque. Rococo splendor, mm-hmm. right? Louis Bouginous. the Fourteenth, right? Louis the Fourteenth has this insane idea that he wants to build the grandest, most opulent palace you've ever seen. He does this out in the country outside of Paris. He basically moves his whole court to Versailles, mm-hmm. um, and well, in Versailles, because of this, because it's out of out in the country, kind of separated from the big city at this point, it develops like a whole subculture all of its own of like the bourgeois that were invited to come to court to Versailles. And it was a big party place and that kind of thing. And so Luli lived there working for the king to create all of this entertainment. And apparently while he was there, he was married most of the time that he was there and he had six children. He was apparently a very good father and good provider for the children. Okay. However, mm. he was uh-uh. known to have several uh, extramarital affairs with both Ooh. women and men at Hey-o. court. Mm. And so... All right. A- yeah, so apparently this was something that the king sort of knew about, but there was no substantial evidence. And I thought you were going to say, like, hooked up with the king or something like that. No, no, no. He did not hook up with the king that we know about. Um, <laughs> but the king's brother, Philippe, mm-hmm. was 
also, even though the king officially disapproved of this, Philippe was kind of an out-and-out homosexual, and I guess, for lack of a better word, he was very into drag at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the king knew this, but he loved his brother so much that he kind of turned a blind eye to this. Mm. And so because of Philippe's kind of presence at court in Versailles, there was kind of a subculture of this at Versailles that it was kind of accepted and and people knew that this happened and it was okay at Versailles because you were kind of separated from the rest of the world, right? Okay. But unless you had some kind of substantial evidence, the king would just like look the other way. Uh-huh. Um, and from what I read, there's some kind of less desirable sides of this where we think Luli had a taste for like younger men, and Ooh. he also would kind of come on to some of his students sometimes, although it's unclear just how young they were. So there's there's that. And but part of this, he actually started kind of an affair with a student of his that did get back to the king, and the king became aware of it, and it was kind of like unrefutable. Mm-hmm. Evidence, and so as soon as the king was unable to turn a blind eye, he just he immediately kind of let Luli go and officially oh, no. kind of severed his friendship with him because mm-hmm. they were very very close. Um, there was also apparently like little nursery rhymes and songs written about Luli's kind of just sexual appetites okay. all the time. Um, Do you have read examples? Read them to us now. Well, they're, they're not, I don't have them in French. I have like an English translation mm-hmm. that doesn't really rhyme, but uh, one of them goes like this. One day Cupid said to his mother, why am I not wearing any clothes? If Luli sees me naked, my backside will be lost. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In other words... Well, no. I'll no, don't, don't, no, go, don't go there. Don't yep. follow up. Yep, yep. So we're there for you, man. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> right. So as soon as the king finds out about this, he officially says, like, Luli is no longer in my close circle of friends, mm-hmm. right? However, Luli still does some work musically for the palace. And so in 1687, and this is, I think, like after the king had officially kind of blacklisted him from his personal life, uh, Luli was conducting the Te Deum that he wrote because the king had been very, very ill and he had recovered. And so Luli wrote this piece in order to celebrate his recovery. And he was Mm. conducting or leading the ensemble for this piece. And... As he was doing this, he had apparently like a long staff that, because there were, it wasn't common to have conductors as we understand them today with like a small baton mm-hmm. on a podium. He would be standing kind of in the orchestra or beside the orchestra, and he was beating time on the ground with oh, this okay. this stick, right? And apparently he was beating time very aggressively, <laughs> and he missed the floor and like really powerfully stabbed himself in his toe or in his foot with his staff. All right. And injured himself. Like this is how aggressively he was beating staff or beating the the staff on the ground. I couldn't. I was like holding on to it. I was like, I'm not going to say something. I'm not going to say something. Oh, gosh. He he injured himself because he was so aggressively beating his staff. Okay. Naomi, okay. quote Naomi Baratera. Oh. 
<laughs> okay. So the doctors look at it, or <laughs> the doctors want to look at it because apparently it's pretty gross and mm-hmm. gnarly, and he refuses to let any doctor treat him. Ah. I don't know why, but he's like, nope, I don't want anyone to look at it. So then his toe becomes infected. There's an abscess on it. It gets really gross. It turns gangrenous. And oh, no. if you know anything about gangrene, like if you get gangrene and then you don't treat it, it spreads really, really quickly. And so basically like two months later, he's dead because oh, my of a gangrene infection that he did not treat. Sorry, three months later. Stabbed himself uh, in the foot. That's yeah. how he died. Jeez. And it, mostly because he was so stubborn, he wouldn't let somebody treat it once it happened. Right. Um, so that's how he died. And apparently he died an extremely wealthy man. Um, so hmm. even though he was out of the king's favor, he must have amassed quite a fortune by that time. So, um, And all three of his sons had musical careers after him at the court, but... None of them that we really, like, listen to or know about today. Mm -hmm. They were just successful Mm. in their time. So. Wow. So, yeah. That is the story of Luli and his his Jean-Baptiste. So, I. Checkered past. I'm just going to take Naomi's notes because there's something that I want to address in this. I looked over. (laughs) Um, And there is. I don't know what this is in reference to, but it's in reference to, to this. I'm reading. I'm reading this blog post where the writer shows an excerpt from Luli's per se, or yeah, I guess per se, and it's like a screenshot where the singer or who, the dancer, whoever it is, is standing with their back to the audience, and they're a rather fit dancer. Oh, that makes sense. Because the sentence says, the best button early music performances these days. <laughs> and I just glanced over and I was like, did Luli have an amazing ass? And we have like... Maybe that was King a Louis. A painting of it. King Louis had a great butt. I don't know. If he was a dancer. That's generally, true. Generally, dancers got some good butts. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think Luli was a good dancer, but Louis the Fourteenth was. Yeah. Right. So... Oh, hey. Yes. The best butt. I think we could we can declare that, right? Luli, <laughs> best butt in early music. Best butt in Baroque no, no, music. No, yeah. no Luli was not the dancer. No, Louis. I know. I know. But <laughs> okay. let's say, because okay. I yeah. thought this was in reference to oh, okay. Luli. Okay. So let's you know, just say that Luli had Luli. We can claim the things. the best butt in early music. Like if you can be the, the bad boy of Trenton, New Jersey. Was that it? Who's the Shostakovich of Trenton? <laughs> <laughs> The Shostakovich right. of Trenton, New Jersey, he and just also call himself the bad boy of music. Right. The bad boy of music, yeah. Right. So then we can yeah. totally have best butt in early music. Luli. Yeah. Jean Baptiste Luli. I've read some Declared. things that suggested that he was actually personality-wise a horrible person and really cool. power-hungry and would basically like trample over anyone to gain a monopoly in power in the Versailles court. But then there are other, and then I've read things that suggested that he did did horrible things to the the young male students that he had under his charge. But then I read other reports that have said it's all gossip and hearsay, and mm. like there's no no proof of it, and that he had a lot of enemies at court, which I can imagine mm-hmm. he did that like to exaggerate some of his sexual preferences. And so, well, he sounds cool, and I'm glad he's dead. 
<laughs> he is Dead, credited in the with foot. inventing a whole genre of French opera, and I feel like whatever horrible things he did in life, he got his comeuppance by getting gangrene. Yeah, I can't imagine that's a pleasant death. No, it sounds horrible. So, Elspeth, cool. do you wish wish that on any other composers? Do you want me to say Wagner? Is that is that what this is? I don't know. I always. I mean, I don't because they're all dead, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, right, right. As long as he's dead. As long as he's dead. Nice. Right. Well, now we know about Luli. Luli. Is there anything that we want to play out to? Oh some well, foot stabbing music. I feel like we should. <laughs> yes, let's listen to some of the Tadam since it's yes. And foot stabbing music. Foot stabbing music. So there you go, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Jean Baptiste de Lully. He actually got at some point in his life a de in- incorporated oh when he reached God. some he kind of status. Of course he so, did. Um, Listen to the music that killed him. Here you go. <laughs> we'll see you next week on Opera After Dark. Hopefully a more uplifting subject matter. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. the first the duke of orleans was a ferocious warrior and an enthusiastic and stylish drag queen nice what is this blog <laughs> i mean they make a big deal about that in the show versailles he rode into battle wearing women's dresses high heels lipstick and makeup nice i mean that seems like it might be difficult well no i guess just the high heels you know, but he's, you're it's on a not horse that, it's not that different than um <coughs> 
if you think back to um, Celtic warriors like William Wallace, um, mm. how they painted their faces. Yeah. Oh, and things true. like that when they rode into battle. Mm-hmm. It's just another form of armor. And I yeah. bet if you were like riding over the hill and you saw this man charging towards you with like a sword on a horse dressed up as a woman, it would be, you'd be pretty confused and disarmed and then he could probably kill you much faster because you had probably. no idea what you like, were oh, taking aback. I, I don't want to kill a woman. No, you're like, what the hell? No. And then you're dead. You did. You did. I, I know that. Stab. I know that the show Versailles is historically accurate in all things. Definitely, probably not. <laughs> um, and also kind of trashy TV. Mm. However, I really feel for his character. Like that, that particular series made me much more sympathetic to his character and his like person in history. Cause it just, it looks like from everything they painted in this show that like being the King's brother was a, a not an easy thing. Oh yeah. And a horrible kind of strange relationship where like you love your brother deeply but then you're also under his control and have to do things that are political like for political gain because he was forced to marry somebody who he probably you know didn't love and mm-hmm. but did so out of duty to his brother and that type of thing and so I just feel like he probably endured a lot in his life that was well, at that time, wasn't Oppressive. it considered that um, the monarchs were sort of chosen by God? Yes. Yeah. So that's probably a weird thing too. Yeah. To have to reconcile that with the fact that this is your brother and right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I and then you know, trying to understand more of like where he came from in terms of the very weird place that he occupied in political life in mm-hmm. Versailles is pretty interesting. So. But, but you guys still. ever watch the Kirsten Dunst uh, Marie Antoinette? No, yes. I've never seen it. <gasps> I have it on DVD. You can borrow it if you like. I okay. just watched it for the first time like a month ago. It's kind of weird, is it, but is it good? Uh, it's super weird. It's like there it's, are modern twists to it, like modern music yeah. in it, like in Hamilton, yeah, like in A Knight's Tale. Yeah. Oh, okay, I like A Knight's Tale. I think. A, it's gorgeous to look at mm-hmm. because all, I think most of it is filmed at Versailles mm-hmm. and they also show pretty accurately like her life at the Petit Trianal, that little like mini palace that was built for her, mm-hmm. for her to escape to, mm-hmm. um, which is really just on the other side of Versailles. Like you like, it's a long walk. It's like a half an hour walk, but <laughs> it's not <laughs> that far. Right. It's yeah. really not that far. Um, but it was considered like far removed enough that she could escape there. Um, hmm. Also, she's just a fascinating woman. Like mm-hmm. what Marie she endured. Yeah, yeah, what she endured in her life. I believe that that scene in the movie where she's basically the handover because she was Austrian, right? She was the sister right. of Joseph II. And when she was handed off to the French, they basically stripped her naked in the woods and made her at the place where they were doing the handoff at the border. Like, she could not bring anything into France with her from Austria. Like, even her clothes had to be French. And And her dog. And her dogs. And so I've been told by friends who know a lot more about this historically than I do that that was fairly accurate that, that that happened, like, very close to how the movie plays it out. Mm-hmm. So, and she was very young too. I think she was 
maybe 15 so I'm 16 when it happened was all that true about her husband was that another Louis that was another Louis yeah that he I don't know it took them forever to consummate their I don't know much about that side of things but yeah. I'm sure that it's true that it took them a long time before they ever produced a child. Like, yeah. that's certainly historically accurate. Yeah. So, huh. for the reasons for that, I'm not really sure. Who knows? 